This is Electric Prisoner, a Vespucci story written by me, Michael Lapointe, and narrated by Gerard Howard. There is a legend about the Siberian taiga. It says that God created the region when he was still a child. He only used a few colors, but they were fresh and vivid, and their subjects were simple. Later, when God grew up, he learned to create more complicated patterns. He grew bored with his childish creation, threw snow on it, and went south forever. Leon remembered this legend when he arrived in the Soviet gulag of Kolyma, a pitiless waste that even God had abandoned. Leon was a political prisoner at the absolute bottom of the gulag hierarchy. Thieves, rapists, and murderers were held in higher regard and were allowed to pilfer men like him for clothes and food. Kolima called itself a gold mining camp, but in reality, it was a savage mechanism for driving prisoners to death. Temperatures plunged below negative 90 degrees Fahrenheit, and over 100,000 prisoners died every year of exposure, exhaustion, and hunger. Full-time gravediggers tried their best to cover up the overstuffed pits. Toiling in the mines one day, Leon watched an old man try to push a wheelbarrow full of rocks. All the prisoners had to drive these heavy barrows through the mud, wearing themselves out. And in Kolima, you couldn't afford to get tired. You'd be in a grave by the end of the day. As he watched the old man struggle, Leon suddenly had an idea. What if he laid tracks along this path, and the wheelbarrows could glide, like a train? He knew it would work. He knew he could build it. But should he say anything? Ideas like this were what landed him in trouble in the first place. Then a sound emerged in his mind. A faint echo. A memory. He had to survive this place. Get back to Moscow. Back to his music. He had to be free. Doing his best to hide his fear, he approached the guard and said, My name is Leon Theremin, and I am an inventor. Leon said that he could remember the day of his birth. At first, there was complete darkness, and it seemed like he was falling. Sounds gradually became louder, and in the dark he saw a little red spot appear and start to get bigger and bigger, brighter and brighter. He emerged on August 15th, 1896, to a prosperous St. Petersburg family, and soon displayed what would become his twin passions, science and music. By seven, he was dismantling his father's watches and putting them back together and he'd taken up the cello. But from an early age, conventional instruments frustrated Leon. Music is free, you can hear it in your mind, yet its expression relies on the skill of your fingers. Leon saw a gap between the spirit of music and its mechanical production. During World War I, he studied physics and music, and soon he was conscripted to help with the war effort. Russia was in a convulsion of change. In 1917, Crushing defeats at the hands of the Germans led to a loss of confidence in the government. And the Bolshevik movement, led by Vladimir Lenin, saw its opportunity to seize power. Electricity was central to Lenin's vision of a new society. If he could deliver electricity to the Russian peasants, he believed he'd secure an almost godlike place in their hearts. Leon was assigned to work as a military radio engineer. At first, it seemed like a pointless distraction, but when he started turning the dial of the radio, a breathtaking vista opened up before him. Those otherworldly sounds between channels. Could they be mastered somehow? 
could they be made to sing? He didn't have time to answer. The war ended, and he was swept back up in his research in physics. He was assigned to construct a device that could measure the density of gas. He set about building a circuit, and when he surrounded it with gas, he noticed that a rise in temperature caused it to expand, altering its capacity. The mechanism was incredibly sensitive. Any movement of Leon's hand changed the density. He adapted his apparatus so that you could listen to these subtle changes. And when he put the headphones on, he heard a strange whistle, familiar to him from radio. It was the sound he'd been hearing between the channels, but clear, purified, almost musical. And he could manipulate it just by moving his hand. When he brought his hand close to the apparatus, the pitch shot higher. And when he drew it away, it swung low. Leon burst into laughter, amazed and overjoyed. This was the sound he'd been searching for. A music unspoiled by the clumsiness of fingers. A music totally free. In a frenzy of invention, he stayed up many nights in a row, developing an instrument from his discovery, one that could work without gas, out in the open air. When it was finished, it didn't look like anything musical. An antenna stood up from a wooden box, so you could manipulate the pitch with your right hand while another antenna looped out the side, so you could control the volume with your left, isolating individual notes. Leon called this invention the Etherphone. It was 1921, already a momentous year for the modern arts in Moscow. A group of painters had recently staged a groundbreaking abstract exhibition, declaring themselves the death of art. All over the world, it seemed, artists were rejecting conventional forms and grasping for new modes of expression. At a small concert in October, enthusiasts of modern art gathered to hear what was being advertised as a totally new sound. But at first, all they saw on stage was a plain wooden box with an antenna. Suddenly a small, elegant man appeared in a tuxedo, the instrument's inventor, Leon Theremin. The sound of his steps seemed incredibly loud as he crossed the stage, the audience's skepticism hanging in the air. To his horror, when he switched on the etherphone, Speakers emitted a terrible screech, and people clutched their ears. But the inventor swiftly got his creation under control, and with a sly glance at the crowd, he conjured Sensan's swan from the etherphone. Now the silence in the auditorium deepened, not with doubt, but with rapture. Everyone was astonished by this bizarrely beautiful music. This instrument was singing of the future. Soon, Lenin caught wind of Leon's invention. In the spring of 1922, the architect of the Soviet Union sent word that he'd like to see the etherphone. Leon arrived at the Kremlin, excited but nervous. While working as a radio engineer, he'd worn a Bolshevik uniform, but he'd never considered himself a political man. The world of politics seemed like a maze, something you could get trapped inside, when what Leon wished for most deeply was freedom, to soar like the invisible songs of his instrument. But then, you didn't say no to Lenin. The Soviet leader sat at the back of the room, looking distracted and bored while Leon set up the etherphone. But as soon as he heard it sing, Lenin jolted to attention and drew closer. He wanted to try the instrument himself. His advisors looked on in disbelief as Leon actually took Lenin's hands and guided them in a rendition of Glinka's Skylark.
Lennon instantly grasped the propaganda potential of the Etherphone. Not only did it advertise the all-powerful wonders of electricity, but it symbolized the Bolsheviks' broader rejection of aristocratic values. Perhaps one day every peasant would have an instrument like this, one they could play without years of painstaking practice. The Etherphone could become the first truly socialist instrument. Lenin sent Leon on a tour across the country, where he captivated audiences with this evidence of Soviet ingenuity. Soon, people began merging the man and the machine, referring to it as the Terminvox, the voice of Theremin. Leon was wary of working for the state, but he saw how Lenin's patronage could work to his advantage. He requested permission to exhibit the Terminvox in Europe. The tour was a hit. In Germany, France, and Britain, the man advertised that the Soviet Edison displayed his invention, the radical marriage of science and music striking awe into Albert Einstein, Paul Valéry, and George Bernard Shaw. Leon adopted the guise of the modern world's musical liberator. My apparatus frees the composer from the despotism of the twelve-note scale, he declared. He wanted everyone to experience the freedom of the world between the channels. But a new despotism was on the horizon. When Lenin died in 1924, Joseph Stalin started consolidating power with a brutal series of purges. Word trickled out that the Soviet experiment might not be so utopian after all. But Leon still refused to get entangled with politics. Whenever a European journalist asked him about the working conditions in the Soviet Union, Leon insisted that he was as free to pursue his inventions as any other scientist. He knew better than to get on Stalin's bad side. Maybe it would be better if he kept away for a while. In 1927, he secured permission to visit America. When his transatlantic liner docked at a pier on the Hudson River, reporters swarmed Leon, who boldly predicted his Terminvox would replace the piano as the most popular household instrument. Others saw something even more profound than music in Leon's invention. He tapped into the ether, that invisible medium all around us, and who knows what else might be lurking there. Some speculated that sound waves from the past could be recovered, and Leon's instrument might be able to tune into the ancient speeches of Cicero, or the whispered words of a lost loved one. In January 1928, Leon held his New York debut in the Grand Ballroom of the Hotel Plaza. Beneath the crystal chandeliers, and between the ivory pilasters, the cream of Manhattan High Society assembled. Musical luminaries like Toscanini and Rachmaninoff were present, curious to study the strange instrument. A silence draped the room as the small Russian man approached his invention, offered the audience a mischievous smile, and switched on the Terman box. At first there was nothing but a low buzz, but then Leon drew up his hand like a conductor and began to play Schubert's Ave Maria. An electric murmur ran through the room. It must be a trick. All he did was wave his hands. But though some weren't impressed by Leon's repertoire, Rachmaninoff, for one, thought the excitement exaggerated. Everyone recognized the instrument as a breakthrough. It was as close to a miracle as anything we've ever witnessed, gushed the New York Herald Tribune. While Time magazine said that Leon had the most beautiful hands in the world. Now the instrument simply bore his last name, the Theremin. The little spark of this performance set off a capitalist brush fire. The Radio Corporation of America signed Leon to a deal to develop a home theremin, betting that in the heady atmosphere of the Jazz Age, Americans would flock to its novel sound. Meanwhile, a wealthy patron gave him the use of a brownstone on 54th Street, where he established a studio. 
In the bowels of his lab, Leon was free to pursue his futuristic whims. He developed a rudimentary television. In the aftermath of the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, he designed a radio alarm system to encircle cradles. He even drew up plans for an invisible bridge that cars would drive across on electromagnetic waves. But the shadow fell upon this inventor's paradise. Stalin wanted more than propaganda from Leon's time in New York. After all, he was mingling with some of the most powerful figures in American science and industry. One day, he was visited by Soviet agents. They took him to a cafe on Fifth Avenue, made him drink a few glasses of vodka, and started asking questions. Then they gave him an assignment. He was ordered to learn as much as he could about the American airplane industry. What choice did he have? He agreed. This was just the price of freedom, Leon told himself. He resolved to give them a little information, but not so much that they'd keep pressing him into service. For a while, it seemed to work. Before every meeting with the agents, Leon would eat half a kilo of butter so he could down the vodka shots like it was nothing. The agents seemed satisfied, and Leon thought he had everything under control. It was later that year that Leon finally met someone who could elevate his instrument to its artistic height. Clara Reisenberg was introduced to him at a party, and when she tried the theremin, Leon was amazed by the grace of her movements, the suppleness of her wrists, the precision of her fingers. With perfect ease, she made the theremin sing like an angel. Clara was also an expatriate. Born in Lithuania, she'd been admitted to the St. Petersburg Conservatory for violin at the age of five, the youngest person ever granted such an honor. But unlike Leon, who'd found favor with the communist regime, Clara's family had endured persecution, been plunged into famine, and forced to emigrate to America. At the time of her meeting with Leon, Clara was beginning to experience crippling pain in her arm. Due to years of malnutrition during the Soviet Revolution, her bones hadn't properly formed. She would be forced to give up the violin. In many ways, Clara was the theremin's ideal maestro. Not only did she have perfect pitch, but a violinist who could no longer play symbolized Leon's desire to cast off the physical shackles of music and become totally free. He soon fell in love with the young woman, with her shy, toothy smile and big mysterious eyes. On her 18th birthday, he presented her with a radio-infused cake that automatically rotated and lit up with candles when she approached it. Leon would never forget the delighted grin on her face when the radio waves registered her getting closer and triggered a small motor that spun the cake. It spoke to him of a freedom even greater than music. Later that night, they found themselves alone, and, in an upsurge of joy, Leon got down on one knee and asked her to marry him. Clara's face changed. He knew he'd made a mistake. She became quiet and couldn't meet his eye. No, she said. She'd already promised herself to another man. His name was Rockmore, and they had plans to be married soon. Leon quickly got up and dusted off his knee. He said they should forget all about it and play some music. But he could tell he'd spoiled the mood of the party and quickly made an excuse to leave. The cake turned once more as he hurried out. After Clara was married and became Clara Rockmore, Leon threw himself into his work with manic energy. He decided to construct a massive theremin, one that could respond to the movements of an entire body not just a hand. When this huge apparatus was complete, Leon invited dancers to experiment with it. 
Each wild contortion, each sudden burst, caused the theremin sound to change. Very few could control this sensitive instrument, but those who could felt that Leon's invention was calling forth the music of their emotions, the music of their souls. Among the most brilliant dancers was Lavinia Williams, a major figure in the American Negro Ballet, one of the first all-black troops assembled to perform modern dance. But so obsessed with the invention was Leon, he hardly noticed the glances Lavinia was sending him from across the studio. Late one night, when all the other dancers had gone home, Lavinia was still practicing, keeping an eye on the strange foreigner who kept fiddling with his invention. To Leon's surprise, she invited him to dance, and the invitation came in his native tongue. It turned out that Lavinia spoke six languages, Russian among them. He stood upright and smoothed his shirt, nervous. Leon never danced, let alone in the modern style. But something in Lavinia's eyes, a warmth, an understanding, drew him into her arms, and suddenly they were close, swaying across the studio floor to the sweet electric sound. In 1938, Leon and Lavinia were married, ignoring the air of scandal that accompanied their interracial union. The couple would sit together in restaurants, speaking Russian, aware that to those around them they cut a figure as otherworldly as the sounds of the theremin. Soon, however, these glamorous nights with Lavinia were the only bright spot in Leon's life. His run of good luck in America had ended. Released during the Great Depression, the RCA home theremin was a flop, and none of his other inventions found commercial success either. He found himself faced with a lab of half-realized experiments and a mountain of personal debt. While Lavinia patiently listened, Leon vented his frustrations. No one is listening, he said. He was trying to lead them into the future, but no one would follow. What Lavinia didn't know was that these weren't just professional problems. As his status waned, Leon was losing access to the industry players he was meant to be informing on. Back in the Soviet Union, the authorities took notice. Maybe he wasn't useful in America anymore. On a raining morning in September 1938, Russian agents entered Leon's brownstone. Lavinia woke with a scream as they pulled her husband out of bed. They told him to dress, quickly, and bring nothing with him. Lavinia cursed them in Russian, but Leon gently told her to be quiet. Everything would be alright, he said. In truth, he had no idea where he was headed when the agents escorted him out of the house. They led him to a pier, where a cargo ship awaited, and forced him up the gangplank. Just before being led into the hold, where he'd remained for the journey across the ocean, Leon managed to cast a final glance at New York, the skyscraper shrouded in mist. So it was over. For the next thirty years, no one in America would see him. Lavinia could only presume one thing. He'd been kidnapped by Soviet agents, taken back home, and shot. Leon had made music out of thin air, and vanished into it himself. When he arrived in his homeland, he found it all terribly changed. Stalin's paranoia seemed to permeate everyday life. By now, one in twenty people had been arrested and either summarily executed or sent to languish in Siberian prison camps. Not only did Leon not receive a hero's welcome, but the man who'd once held Lenin's hand seemed to inspire anxiety in everyone he knew. He found it difficult to get work, and long-time friends avoided him in the streets. But why? After all, he'd cooperated with the agents in America, 
he'd held up his half of the bargain. Wasn't that enough? Late one night in March 1939, agents took Leon into custody. They thrust him into a cell built for 40 men, now overflowing with more than a hundred. Screams haunted the prison, of men being tortured and killed. Under interrogation, Leon was forced to sign a confession, saying he'd participated in counter-revolutionary activities, whatever that might mean. He was sentenced to eight years of hard labor, and the guards squeezed him onto a cattle car for a journey of more than 5,000 miles. His destination was a Siberian gold mining camp called Kolima. Leon soon discovered that this was no mining operation. Later, it would be estimated that one person died for every kilogram of gold extracted from the region. It was a few months into his sentence that he saw the old man pushing the wheelbarrow and had his idea for the train tracks. He approached the guard, hands up, wondering if he'd be shot on sight. You didn't just go up to guards with new ideas, but he had to try something, anything, to survive. He couldn't last much longer in these mines. Already his weight was down to perilous levels, and he felt his mind was slipping. Late at night, men snoring all around, he seemed to see Lavinia's face and feel her body, close, as he swayed to the music of the theremin. Like an infernal torture, he felt her breath on his neck, the whisper of a lost paradise. What if people had listened, he asked. What if they'd followed him into the future? Everything would be different. Maybe the guard was impressed by the prisoner's courage. Maybe he was just in a good mood. Either way, he gave Leon permission to try his idea for the monorail. Over the next few days, Leon laid out the tracks and adapted the wheelbarrows to run along them. As he worked, he could feel the guard's eyes on his back. Several inmates taunted Leon by telling him that the guards planned to shoot him if his invention didn't work. When the project was finished, at least Leon prayed it was finished, everyone gathered to watch him demonstrate it. Not even the anxiety of playing music for Lenin could compete with this fear. Leon set the wheelbarrow on the track, made sure everything was in alignment, and let go. Nothing happened. There was a nervous rustle in the crowd. This stupid prisoner had sealed his fate. And then Leon saw the wheelbarrow's brake was still on, and with one swift kick, he released it. The barrel glided down the track. This primitive monorail system quickly increased productivity, and as a reward, the prisoner started receiving more rations. Leon was a hero, and now the authorities wondered if this inventor might be too valuable to kill. They ordered his transfer out of Kolyma, to a prison back in Moscow. When they arrived, Leon could hardly believe his eyes. This didn't look like a prison at all. The rooms were oak-paneled, crisp white sheets freshened every bed. And best of all, there were delicious and nourishing meals. But though he thought his luck had finally changed, this was still a cage. One of his fellow prisoners explained that Leon had landed himself in a kind of gulag think tank, where inmates were tasked with working on projects for the NKVD, the precursor of the KGB. Halfway through his explanation, the prisoner fell suddenly silent. A man had entered, his presence silently darkening the room. It was Lavrenti Beria, the chief of Soviet secret police. In Siberia, Leon had heard rumors of Beria's brutality so shocking he could hardly believe them. One man said Beria had his limousine driven around Moscow, where he would abduct young children, then rape them and leave them for dead. Another man said that Beria had had his own family liquidated. Now, the monster of Moscow examined Leon through his tiny rimless glasses, 
a silent smile playing on his lips. He ordered the inventor to come with him. Beria had a project in mind. When he explained the idea, it sounded insane. Beria wanted some sort of far-fetched listening device, nothing less than a magical ability to spy. If Leon could do this, Beria said, the authorities might be inclined to shorten his sentence. Doing his best to meet those devilish eyes, Leon gave him a curt, Yes, sir, as if obeying the simplest of orders. But when the chief had gone, Leon fled to his room and lay out on his bed. For days on end, he remained there in a state of meditation, but his thoughts always hit a brick wall. He couldn't think here, with bars on the windows. He couldn't invent. What was this ridiculous place, where the most dangerous men in the country asked the impossible, dangling your freedom like a cruel joke? Leon closed his eyes and lapsed into a fantasy, halfway between dream and reality, of his spirit passing between those bars and traveling out, way out, into the city. Suddenly his eyes shot open. It was there, right there. His next invention. On a cold September night in 1952, in the American consulate in Moscow, a security guard rushed into the ambassador's office and gave him a bizarre instruction. Sit at your desk and start reading aloud. The maids watched on nervously as technicians with electronic sweepers crept through the building. Finally, one of the technicians honed in on the corner of the ambassador's office, where a radio sat beneath a hand-carved great seal of the United States. The seal had been hanging there for as long as anyone could remember, a gift to the consulate from a group of Soviet Boy Scouts. The technician took it down and started smashing the wall with a hammer. Nothing was there. He signaled to the ambassador, keep reading, and turned his hammer on the seal itself. With a few ferocious blows, he broke it open and extracted a slender metal reed. So this was it. For the past seven years, the KGB had been using this tiny instrument to spy on the American consulate. Only when the radio operator accidentally tuned into the sound of the ambassador dictating letters did anyone realize something was wrong. The Americans called it The Thing, with a capital T, and were baffled by how it worked. It wasn't plugged into the wall, and it didn't have a battery. Somehow a beam from outside was shot into the consulate, traveled through walls, and activated the device. But it would take years before anyone could produce something similar. The thing had elevated the art of espionage to a level previously thought impossible. Lavrenti Beria had been thrilled by the thing. He'd given the inventor an impossible task, and he'd more than delivered. In return, he'd promised to shorten Leon's sentence, but that was easily forgotten. What would Theremin do? Lodge a complaint? No, he was too valuable to lose. Every year, it seemed, the Americans invented some new device, and the Soviets had to top it. For the next few years, Beria kept Leon busy, rattling off futuristic concepts that he expected the inventor to spin into present-day reality. One invention could read the sound waves of human voices as they resonated in window panes. In another brazen scheme, Beria even enlisted Leon's help to spy on Stalin himself. Microphones were planted in the Soviet leader's desk and apartment, and it was Leon's job to filter noise from the tapes. All the while, Beria told Leon his sentence would soon be up. Next year, he'd say. Next year. Only after eight years of service to Soviet espionage did Leon finally earn his freedom. On the day of his release, he could hardly restrain his excitement as he strode out the doors into the fresh sunlight. At last, 
he could get back to what mattered most, his musical inventions, free of Beria and his dangerous fantasies. Little did he know, Leon had walked out of the gulag into an even bigger prison. Meanwhile, on the far side of the Iron Curtain, a musical revolution was stirring. It began in 1945, when Alfred Hitchcock directed the psychological thriller Spellbound. For the soundtrack, the master of suspense wanted something fresh. In his notes to the composer, Hitchcock said he needed a new sound to signify his character's descent into madness. The composer had a sudden inspiration. Why not try a theremin? When Hitchcock heard the word, he thought it was something you take for headaches. Spellbound would be the first major Hollywood score to employ a theremin. In the years since Leon had disappeared, presumed dead, composers had experimented with his instrument, but without much popular success. When it occasionally wandered into the mainstream, it was employed for sound effects, like the buzz of a hornet. But with the Spellbound score, it seemed that the public was finally ready to embrace Leon's futuristic sound. The score won an Oscar and became a chart-topping album, and record companies rushed to capitalize on the theremin's sudden popularity. With albums like Music Out of the Moon, and music for peace of mind. The theremin was on turntables everywhere. Then came the science fiction craze of the 50s. American audiences flocked to pictures like The Day the Earth Stood Still, and Leon's spooky sound encircled every flying saucer in the sky. In his parents' basement in Flushing, New York, a 15-year-old named Robert Moog started constructing theremins. Soon he was experimenting with his own handmade instruments, eventually developing the Moog synthesizer, the first commercially available synth. The Beatles, The Doors, and Pink Floyd all used the Moog, changing the complexion of popular music, while artists like Wendy Carlos and Brian Eno set out to explore the brave new world of electronic sound. It might have taken decades, but artists were finally discovering the music in between the channels, all thanks to an obscure instrument named after a Russian inventor. As a result of this interest, Clara Ruckmore experienced a renaissance in her career, by now, she was established as far in the way the world's preeminent theremin artist. But she often grew irritated when people expressed more interest in the man who'd invented her instrument than in her actual music. It seemed like she couldn't get through a single interview without someone asking after the fate of the mysterious Leon theremin. The question became so expected, Clara didn't even answer. She simply took out an encyclopedia of music and pointed to the entry on the theremin. There it was, in black and white. Leon theremin was dead. In 1962, Clara took a trip to Moscow. It had been over 40 years since she'd been in Russia, and the country was unimaginably different. But here and there, she discovered traces of the old city, evoking memories of her earliest youth. Gradually, her mind drifted to Leon. What fate had he encountered when he returned home? The possibilities were almost too horrible to imagine. Soon after her arrival, Clara found herself at a small party, and fell into conversation with a scientist. She mentioned that her instrument was the theremin, and to her surprise, the scientist recognized the name. Ah oh yes, theremin, he said. I had lunch with him today. At first, Clara thought she'd misheard the man, but no, he was being absolutely serious. He'd seen Leon that very afternoon, yet the more Clara pressed him for details, the more nervous he became. The curiosity of foreigners could get a politically compromised man like Theremin into a lot of trouble. But Clara wouldn't let the scientist go until he promised to relay a message. The next morning, the phone rang in her hotel room. 
Over the line came the voice of a ghost, depressed and distant. But it was him. In a few words, he told her to meet him on a platform of the Moscow subway later that day. In all the noise, no one would hear them there. Clara put on her best clothes and descended into the chaos of a Moscow rush hour. Train after train disgorged its passengers, filled up with more and surged on. Clara checked her watch and the map on the wall. This was the time, and this was the place. Where was he? Suddenly there was a whisper in her ear. Clara. She turned to see him standing on the platform. He looked smaller somehow. His body clenched tight, as if on constant guard. But there was no mistaking that mischievous smile. They proceeded slowly up the platform, keeping their distance. He didn't have much time, he said. He was being watched, and probably she was too. She could never tell anyone that they'd met. He just wanted to know one thing. Did she still play the theremin? Clara tried rushing an explanation of all she'd accomplished since he'd left America, and of his growing fame abroad. But another train was arriving, its brakes screeching on the tracks, and she couldn't tell how much he understood. Passengers flooded the platform, separating the two of them. And when the crowd cleared, he was gone. But she could have sworn she heard something, just before he disappeared. She could have sworn he'd asked, And what if they'd listened to me? For a long time, Leon cherished the image of Clara on the platform, the one glimmer of light in his drab existence. In the years since leaving prison, he'd never really escaped the gulag, and followed him wherever he went. The nature of his espionage work with Lavrenti Beria meant that he was under constant surveillance, always a threat to defect or leak state secrets. Finding legitimate work became impossible. Even in scientific fields he'd helped pioneer. He couldn't even try contacting Lavinia, as all his letters were intercepted. Worse still, no one wanted to hear about his music. Lenin might have welcomed the advent of electronic sounds, but deep into Stalin's reign, modern art was considered dangerous. Only Soviet songs, played on traditional instruments, met the state's approval. Leon felt like he was caught in a maze, everything siphoning him toward the one door still open, the KGB. Now he realized he would never escape. Down to his last rubles, and beginning to feel the hunger of Siberia, he returned to his old overlords and asked for a job. The organization offered him a laboratory on Zierzhinsky Square in Moscow, and he accepted. By now, the KGB was at the height of its paranoia. Leon expected to be assigned more inventions, but instead he was ordered to study UFOs, aliens, telepathy, and extrasensory perception. Nothing ever came of this paranormal research. Stalin died in 1953, and the mood in the country became nervously hopeful, with some of his most monstrous henchmen brought to justice. When Leon heard that Lavrenti Beria had been executed, he abruptly crossed himself, a gesture he couldn't remember ever making before, as if the devil himself had passed through the room. Meanwhile, many wrongly accused prisoners were being rehabilitated as victims. Perhaps now was Leon's chance to correct whatever awful mistake had derailed his life. Perhaps he could get back to what really mattered, his music. But to Leon's surprise, when he applied to have his sentence reconsidered, he found himself back in the maze. He showed up at his laboratory the next morning to find it shuttered. No one could tell him why. Old friends began regarding him with a wariness verging on contempt. Somehow, in the settling of scores after Stalin's death, he'd found himself on the wrong side of the ledger. 
Crossing himself hadn't done a thing. The Devil Barrier still pursued him. Their names and reputations stuck together. People wondered exactly what Leon had done in service to Beria. Almost everybody had a loved one who'd been caught in the thresher of the secret police. How far down the path of corruption had Leon traveled? All his degrees and titles were voided, and his inventions were either destroyed or stashed in secret archives. Leon spent the ensuing years shuffling from one low-level job to another and living in a packed communal apartment. He tried setting up a laboratory in a closet, but it was hopeless. No one wanted to hear his music. When he tried bringing his new inventions out into the open, the director of the music conservatory had them chopped up with an axe. By the time he met Clara on the platform, he'd been erased from Soviet history. One afternoon, a reporter for the New York Times came back from lunch to a strange phone call. In a solemn Russian accent, the man on the line said a grave mistake had been made by the historians of modern music. According to every book on the subject, Leon Theremin had been dead for years. But in fact, he was still alive. The writer searched his mind for the reference. It sounded vaguely familiar. Leon Theremin. The electronic music guy? But before he could ask any more questions, the line went dead. The writer followed the lead. It wasn't always easy to get people in Moscow to talk, but he managed to find someone who knew someone who knew someone else, and they provided the phone number of Theremin's apartment. Everybody the reporter talked to said the same thing. Keep my name out of it. The paranoia was typical, but in fact the journalist thought it sounded false. He was seasoned enough with tracking down Soviet sources to know it didn't happen this way. Not unless someone wanted it to. Regardless, he dialed the number, and, as if the man had been waiting by the phone all his life, there was an answer on the very first ring. This is a strange question, the writer said. But are you the inventor, Leon Theremin? When the article appeared in the Times, it sent shockwaves through the music community. Theremin was alive? The thrill of this revelation was soon replaced by another mystery. Why were people only learning of this now? Back in Moscow, Leon was wondering the same thing. He'd long since been taught not to question Soviet bureaucracy. Who was in favor and who was in prison was often just a matter of a momentary whim. But it seemed as if he had an ally in the Kremlin, a guardian angel who'd allowed him to speak to a foreign newspaper. If they wouldn't give him back his laboratory, or restore his scientific degrees, they could at least grant him the dignity of being officially alive. Leon's resurrection was slow in coming, but, finally, he was granted a visa to travel to an electronic music festival in Europe in the 1980s. When he was met at the airport by the New York Times reporter, who'd been sent to cover the visit, Leon eagerly asked him for news from America. In particular, he was desperate to learn something about his wife, Lavinia. Now that he was in Europe, he thought they might be able to see each other. Forty years was a long time, but perhaps their love could be rekindled. The reporter evaded the question and kept the subject on music. But Leon pressed him for details, and finally he had to tell the old man the truth. Lavinia Williams was dead. In the years since Leon's disappearance, she'd moved to Haiti, where she became a mentor to young dancers and an important preserver of West Indian and African dance. Although Haiti was rolling with political violence, Lavinia believed herself to be above politics. Just like Leon, all she really wanted was the freedom to pursue her art. But her generosity toward the poor gave her the reputation of having communist sympathies. And when another political upheaval rocked the country, 
she found herself on the wrong side of history. Early one morning, Lavinia was found dead in her Port-au-Prince apartment. She'd been poisoned, and the case was never solved. The reporter saw the tears come into Leon's eyes. But at the same time, the inventor didn't seem so surprised. He knew what politics could do to an artist. At the festival, Leon stood off to the side from the crowds of excited young people. They recognized him as the electronic movement's godfather, but there was something unapproachable about him, with his old-world manners and stiff black suits. While they were pushing music into the future, he seemed like a figure out of the past. In truth, he was simply dumbstruck by what he was hearing. Even in his most extravagant fantasies, he never imagined music like this. Pure, wild, free. It reminded him of Lavinia, another artist who'd sought unlimited freedom, and he grieved this future she would never live to see. It wasn't until after the fall of the Soviet Union that Leon visited America again, in 1993. Some documentary filmmakers wanted to take him around New York, where he could tell them stories about his time in the city almost 60 years ago. He wanted to say that he was too weak to make the journey, but they were willing to pay. He needed the money. His one request was to visit Clara Rockmore. By now they were both elderly, but Clara was the stronger of the two, and she assisted him down the hall to her apartment. Leon was embarrassed by the help. He resented being trapped in this failing body. But he didn't let the cameras see his discomfort. Leaning on Clara's arm, all he could think about was how different things would have been if audiences had been ready for electronic music all those years ago. What if they'd listened? he asked in a cracked and feeble voice. It was the question he'd been asking for decades, but all Clara could do was pat his arm. Siberia, Beria, Lavinia, everything would be different. The answer was too heartbreaking for words. In her apartment, Clara invited Leon to sit before the theremin. She switched it on, and out of that faint buzz, she conjured an old song, Since Sun's Swan the very first piece he ever performed on the instrument. Leon smiled, his eyes clouded by tears. He knew he was a man who'd missed his time. While he'd lived in America, his invention had failed to become widely accepted, only finding its audience years after he left. And back in the Soviet Union, he'd been rejected, the conductor of a music no one wanted to hear. When he contemplated the shape of his life, he saw how he'd always been an anomaly, like a signal in between stations. His imagination flung far into the future while the Cold War split his life in two. Only in the music of the theremin did these broken signals come together into something solid and clear, something beautiful. One morning in Moscow, not long after returning from America, Leon Theremin closed his eyes for a final time. His face was calm and focused, as if he were listening to something very deep inside. It was pure music, unfettered by all material. Then he dissolved into the ether. He was finally free. <laughs>